We can all be guilty of a rush to judgment from time to time, can't we? In fact, in the NFL, they have a whole replay system set up for that very purpose, don't they? A referee or an umpire or a judge makes a a bad call, and what happens? The coach pulls out the red flag, and he throws it out there, and you know, okay, this is going to be a replay timeout. And the the referee goes over, and he goes underneath the hood, and he takes a look at everything, and he tries to figure out what, what happened, whether or not he made the right call or not. And a lot of times he'll come out after that and he'll walk out to the middle of the field, he'll turn around his battery pack and he'll look up at the stands and he'll say what? He'll say, upon further review. And typically when he says those three words, upon further review, we have a general understanding that he realized he made a mistake and needs to correct a call that was made. Well, sometimes as believers, we need those opportunities to to get under the replay hood, if you will, or to take a, a replay timeout so that we can look again at what we are planning to do, look again at our actions, look again at our desires. And there's sometimes that we're gonna need to step back in life and say with these referees, you know what, upon further review, maybe I was a little bit short-sighted, maybe I let my guard down, maybe I made a decision that I never would have made in greater moments of clarity. When our text, David's going to need one of these replay timeouts, and the Lord's going to provide it for him at just the right time. And see, 1 Samuel 25 is going to be a lesson for all of us in how to take full advantage of these replay timeouts that God graciously provides us in life. So if you're not already there, grab your Bibles, open them up to 1 Samuel 25. You know, 1 Samuel 25 starts out rather jarringly. The beginning of verse 1, the first three words, now Samuel died. If you're like me, I mean, you, you read that and you're thinking to yourself, well, well there's got to be more to that story. He's been such a significant character, and, and yet all we get is, is three words. But then we see the impact that he made. It says, all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Samuel had had an enormous impact on the life of Israel, and we've looked at a lot of that throughout this study. But when we're thinking about where we've been recently, the, the attention has shifted from Samuel to David and Saul. And so it's, it's kind of strange to just have this thrown in here, just this abrupt, and now Samuel died. But there's something about the relationship of David and Saul that's even at work here in the death of Samuel, and that's this. The death of Samuel basically marks the end of any hope of reconciliation between King Saul and David. See, Samuel was the go-between. Samuel was the one who could go into the presence of Saul and go into the presence of David, not as an enemy of either, and mediate between the two of them. And so with the death of Samuel, we see that, that really any hope of reconciliation between these two is pretty much out the window. But our text continues in 1 Samuel 25 because it's really about more than the death of Samuel. It's about this interaction between David, Abigail, and this man named Nabal. So pick up in 25, the second half of verse 1. It says, Then David arose, and he went down to the wilderness of Paran. So you remember, he was in En Gedi. And so here's our map again. En Gedi, if you look over on the far right-hand side there, Hazazon Tamar, that's another name for En Gedi. And so David has left there and come down here with that red circle to Maon. That's the wilderness of Paran. And so it says that David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. And so here's the introduction 
to some of the main characters that we're going to encounter here, Abigail and Nabal. Abigail is described as a woman with discretion. Nabal, before we even get to the man, he's described first by what he owns, by his possessions. He's got 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And so what that's telling us about that is even from an outside perspective, even from a secular perspective, even from a worldly point of view, the, the most significant thing about this man, Nabal, wasn't his character, wasn't anything about him. It was simply that he was a man who had great possessions and great wealth. And then we're introduced to him, and his name is Nabal. And we'll come to find out that he was not only just a harsh and, and bad man, badly behaved man, but he was also a fool. But among these possessions, there were 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And what had happened is while David and his men were in the wilderness, they came alongside the shepherds of Nabal, and they helped them care for this massive flock. They protected the sheep. They fed the sheep. They watered the sheep. They, they protected the shepherds. They made sure, in fact, the text will say later, that they were a wall between the shepherds and his possessions and anyone from the outside who might pose a threat or pose a danger. Well, after doing this for a short amount of time or for an amount of time, David looked at his men and said, hey, go to Nabal and just ask him for whatever he sees fit to give us in return for the service that we've rendered to him. This wouldn't have been out of line. This would have been expected. This would have been something that would have been a, a normal ask, a normal request. And so David's men come, but it says in verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. Have you ever had one of those rejections where you step back and you kind of look at the person and you say, you know what, a, a simple no would have sufficed? This is one of those moments. I mean, Nabal doesn't just say no or yeah, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. He says, no. He says, why should I give my bread, my water, that my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to you strangers who come from I have no idea where? And so you see the self-centeredness of this man. You see that even in return for an act of service rendered to him that he's unwilling to share. He's unwilling to, to part with some of his possessions. But consider for a moment everything that David had endured at the hands of King Saul at this point. Betrayal, embarrassment, humiliation, attempted murder, slander, deceit, attempted murder. I mean, think about that. And, and let your mind go back to 1 Samuel 24, where we were two weeks ago. And the fact that in 1 Samuel 24, David had Saul in his grasp. This man who had tried to kill him, this man who had given a, a promised wife away to a, a rival to embarrass and humiliate him, this man who had tried to deceive him, this man who had tried to humiliate him and slander against him, and, and again, tried to multiple occasions kill him. And he's literally as vulnerable as he can possibly be within the grasp of David. And what does David do? David cuts off a corner of his robe and he feels guilt over even doing that. And he stops the 600 men who are with him from doing any harm to Saul. And he goes out and he pleads his integrity before Saul. And he says, Saul, I had you within my grasp and I let you go. And he said, I'm, I'm going to trust the Lord to judge between you and I. And so if David had that response to this king who had tried to kill him, who had tried to murder him, who had done all these horrible things to him, surely he's going to just shrug this off with Nabal. 
This guy who's not worth his time. This guy who lives in the middle of the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. Surely he's just going to write this off as well. Maybe he'll say, you know what, Nabal, may the Lord judge between you and me again. But that's not exactly what happens. Verse 13, David says to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Is this the same guy? The same guy who talked 600 men down from killing Saul in the cave? The same guy who felt guilty for cutting off a piece of Saul's robe? He now looks at his men and he leaves 200 behind with the baggage, but he takes 400 men armed and ready for battle with him. See, this is bloodthirsty David. This is vengeful David. This is offended David. This is wrong. David. See, that's the thing about sin. It's one of those frustrating things about sin in the Christian life, isn't it? Just when we think we've got a particular sin licked, there it is. It pops up again and it catches us off guard while our defenses are down. That's point number one for us this morning. As we're going to learn a lesson of how to, to benefit from these replay timeouts, we need to remember that we need to be daily waging war against sin. Daily wage war against sin. Just when we're ready to boast in a particular area of our sanctification, to think that we can say, you know what, I'm done with a particular sin, I don't have to worry about that anymore, and we let our guard down, even that same day sometimes we're faced with the reality of our ongoing weakness and temptation. John Owen was a Puritan writer, wrote a book called Overcoming Sin and Temptation, encourage you to pick it up. Uh, it's a fantastic book. But he wrote about this very idea, mortifying sin, putting sin to death, ensuring that we don't leave off from killing sin until we are absolutely sure that it is 100% dead. Here are some things that he wrote. These quotes will be up on the screen. If you want the quotes, talk to me afterwards. I'll, I'll get you a copy of them. Says this, not only when it is actually vexing, he's speaking of the sin here, not only when the sin is actually vexing, enticing, and seducing, but in their retirements, they consider this is our enemy, this sin. This is his way in progress. These are his advantages. Thus has he prevailed, and thus he will do if not prevented. In other words, Owen is saying here, we need to know what sins that, that we struggle with. We need to know their ways. We need to know their paths. We need to know what opportunities they take advantage of. And we need to be mindful that unless they are actively prevented, they will prevail yet again. Owen continues. He says, indeed, one of the choicest and most eminent parts of practical spiritual wisdom consists in finding out the subtleties, policies, and depths of any indwelling sin to consider and know wherein its greatest strength lies, what advantage it uses to make of occasions, opportunities, temptations, what are its pleas, pretenses, reasonings, what are these sins, what are their stratagems, colors, how do they put past themselves off, how do they disguise themselves, excuses, to set on the wisdom of the spirit against the craft of the old man, to trace the serpent of this sin in all its turnings and windings, to be able to say at its most secret and imperceptible actings, this is your old way and course. I know what you aim at. 
And so to be always in readiness is a good part of our warfare. Y'all, if we're going to be daily waging war against sin, we need to be students of our weaknesses, students of our temptations, students of our, our sins. To know when they beset us, when we're tempted, when we're most prone to give in to these so that we can be prepared, so that we can stay in readiness, as Owen says. To be always prepared to do battle against them. One more from Owen. It says, he that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking or stops striking before the other ceases living, does but half his work. It's that old scene from, an, from the action movies, right? It's in almost every one that we watch. That you think, finally, the enemy's dead. He's been dealt the death blow. And so you kind of fist pump and you celebrate until the camera angle pans back to where his body was laying and what? He, he's not there. And you realize, oh man, he's going to come back. That's what Owen's talking about. We can't leave off killing sin, putting sin to death in our lives until we are absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt sure that that sin is lifeless, that that sin is absolutely dead. Paul talks about this, right, in, in Colossians, in Ephesians, in Galatians. He talks about putting off and putting on. We're to put off the practices of the old man. We're to mortify them. We're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And instead, we're to put on the, the deeds of compassion and holiness and kindness and love. So you remember, just in chapter 24, David is the model of trusting in God's justice, we held him up that way. We said, guys, when you are tempted to take revenge for yourself, remember what David did with Saul. He's the model of humility. But now, in chapter 25, he's ready to take things into his own hands. No more trusting God's timing. No more waiting on God's justice. No, his pride has been offended, and he's going to see to it that Nabal pays. See how easy it is for sin if we're not always on guard, always waging war against it to, to just pop up again. What are those sins in your life? What are those sins that you struggle with that seem to be conquered one day only to rear their ugly heads the next? See, as believers in Christ, we can never take a day off from putting off. We always have to be about that business. We can never let up in our pursuit of holiness. We can never let the, the idea that one day, one week, one month of victory means no more defeat ever. One way that God helps us in this, in this daily waging war against sin, in this battle against sin, is through his ministry of restraint. That he restrains us. And he does this through his word. He does this through his Holy Spirit. And he does this through other believers in our lives. God will often intervene to keep us from sin. And he does this with David in 1 Samuel 25. We pick back up around verse 14. One of the servants runs and tells Abigail, hey, your boneheaded husband. Nabal, the fool, I mean, honestly, he says at the end of it, he's a worthless man. One cannot even speak to him. That's how much this man was held in regard. Even the servant, the household servant, is not afraid to say to his wife, hey, this guy's worthless. So he goes to Abigail, and he tells her what happened. He says, look, these men were good to us. They were a wall to us out in the fields. When we were with them, we were safe. And they went to Nabal, and they said, hey, can you... 
you know, just whatever you see fit. They weren't asking for the kingdom, asking for the household, asking for everything. They just said, look, anything that you see fit to offer us, we would appreciate. And the servant tells Abigail, your boneheaded husband rejected them and said no. And now David's pretty angry. And I don't know if you've heard about David, but David's a warrior, and he's got 400 warriors with him, and they've got their swords on. And so here we see the early evidences of God's restraint. He takes this servant who goes to Abigail and says, Abigail, something needs to be done about this. Nabal, he made a huge mistake. And if nothing is done, all of us are dead. Verse 18, then Abigail made haste. She knew her husband. She knew King David or or David. And she knew what was at stake. So she makes haste and she prepares this offering, these gifts for David. And she goes out and meets David on this donkey that she was riding and she goes out to, to plead with him to say, this is, is wrong. Please don't do this. There's, there's innocent among the guilty here. But let's get the, the, the full picture here again. David, a warrior, 400 men with him with their swords strapped on. He's going out not just to, to warn David, and he's not going out just to, to, or to Nabal. He's not going out just to take out Nabal alone. Otherwise, he wouldn't have brought 400 men with him. David's going out to wipe out this entire group of people. You remember back in the story of, of when David went and took shelter in Nob, and then he fled from there, and when Saul came to Nob, how he wiped out all the priests there? One commentator said that, that this had the opportunity to be David's Nob, that he was going to go in and wipe out everyone associated with Nabal, guilty or not. And so Abigail acts, and if she failed, it would mean the end of Nabal and everyone in his household, every male in his household. Verse 21, David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of all who belong to him. David's invoking a curse on himself if he doesn't go out and wipe out Nabal and all the males of his household. The tension rises as Abigail and David meet. Verse 24, she falls at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, I didn't see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord has, what's that next word? Restrained you. The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. See, this is the sin that that David is in danger of committing here. The blood guilt of innocence and from saving with your own hand, your own arrogance, your own pride. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant. Verse 30, when the Lord has done to my Lord all, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you as prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience. Why? For having shed blood without cause and for my Lord working salvation for himself. Abigail's a wise woman. And so she goes to David 
And she responds correctly in humility and in respect, and, but yet also in boldness. And she gives this gift, this offering to hopefully atone for her husband's foolishness. But there's more going on here. God is at work here through Abigail. Yes, Abigail's a wise woman, but God is working through Abigail. How is he working again? Verse 30, when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you. In other words, David, when you're going to be king and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause and for my Lord working salvation himself. See, Abigail knew exactly who David was. She knew that he was destined for the throne. And God intervenes here through her to prevent him from carrying out an act of personal vengeance that would have resulted in guilt on his conscience for having shed blood without cause and working salvation for himself. We have to read between the lines here a little bit, but you can sense the pangs of guilt that probably pierced David's soul at this point, can't you? Maybe he's ushered back into the, the cave with Saul. He remembers when he had that, you know, that triumph of patience, that triumph of faith in God's justice. Maybe he's even ushered back to the point where he followed Saul out of the cave, holding up the corner of Saul's robe and pleading his integrity before Saul. Saying, Saul, I'm going to trust God to deal with this. And now he doesn't hold the corner of a robe in his hand, but he feels the weight of the sword strapped on his side. Maybe he remembers his own words of calling the Lord to judge, calling on the Lord to avenge. See, Abigail had called him on his sin, and she was dead on. Our battle against the flesh is it's hard. And as we've already seen, it's, it's our task to be daily about the, the, the task of waging war against sin. But the good news in that is God doesn't abandon us in that battle. He doesn't look at us and say, good luck, you're on your own. We've talked about this a lot in, in this group, in this study. Christianity is not an individual sport. God designed the body of Christ for purposes such as this. So that we would be with one another, living life with one another so that he might use others in our lives to restrain us, that he might intervene through the wisdom of others. It leads us to point number two this morning. It's this. We need to welcome the rebuke of godly friends. We need to welcome the rebuke of godly friends. That implies that we need to have godly friends who know our weaknesses. As we were talking about in, in that whole idea of daily waging war against sin and being a, a student of ourselves and knowing our weaknesses, knowing our temptations, knowing those times, those situations, those circumstances that tug at our temptations and our lusts and our desires. We don't only need to know those. We need to make sure that there are one, two, three other people, men in our lives who also know those things about us. So that they might be most efficiently and effectively used by the Lord in this ministry of restraining us, intervening in our lives to help us as we daily wage war against sin. Are you a person who would welcome a brother's rebuke? Because it might just be God working through him to prevent you from sin. Are you able to zoom out from the heat of the moment? 
to see God's restraining hand at work through the care of the body of Christ. How do you respond when a brother confronts you, when a brother rebukes you? Is it with defensive pride? Or are you willing to take one of these moments, take one of these timeouts, and humbly consider whether what he's saying has any validity to it? Consider a few verses. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If you have people in life that are, are in your inner circle and all they're doing is telling you how great you are, you need new people in your inner circle. You do. You need people who are willing to have a hard conversation with you, to pull you aside and say, brother, I, I think you're out of line here. I'm concerned for you here. You know, I heard the way that you spoke to your wife in small group the other night. I don't know if you caught that, but it sounded, it was harsh. We need those people in our lives. Galatians 6, 1 through 2, we need these people in our lives. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. That's the daily waging war against sin there. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The end of every rebuke, the end of every confrontation at least should be restoration. Confrontation is not about leaving our brother in a bloody pulp on the ground saying, so there. No, it's about coming alongside a brother and in gentleness and in humility and out of love, calling him to repent from sin and to return to to right fellowship with the Lord, to obedience to the Lord. How about Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25? This isn't a passage we often think of in this context, but I want us to approach it in this context. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. You better believe there's going to be rebuke and confrontation, restoration in that process. Stirring one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. See this idea of rebuke, confrontation, restoration, being involved in one another's life to this degree, it's part of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: iron what? Sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Abigail confronted David because she didn't want the blood of innocence on his hand. She was concerned for his righteousness. And that's why we should be confronting, rebuking other brothers in our lives because we're concerned for their righteousness. That's how we should understand it when another brother comes to us with a rebuke or a confrontation because they are concerned for our righteousness. And so we have to ask, are we willing to be a good recipient of rebuke? You know, Abigail didn't know how David was going to respond. She had basically put her, her entire life in his hands at his mercy. He could have responded with his sword and ended her life right there, but he didn't. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you, God sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and working salvation with my own hand. 
David doesn't get angry with her. He gets thankful. Why? Is it that he's won over by the gifts or smitten by Abigail? Or that her apology and repentance suffices for Nabal? Well, maybe those things played a, a certain role in it, but his thankfulness comes from the fact that he sees what's going on behind, excuse me, behind the scenes. He sees the one who sent Abigail to him. He sees that God sent Abigail to keep him from blood guilt. Abigail goes her way after this, returning to her husband who's throwing a, a, a party like a king. I mean, this guy's, again, he's a big fish in a very small, small pond. And he's throwing this, this party and he's drunk out of his mind such that he has no clue what's going on. So Abigail once again <laughs> demonstrates some discretion and decides, you know what, I'm not going to really share with him what happened tonight. She wakes up the next morning, verse 37. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, later the Lord struck Nabal and he died. You know what's funny is commentators like to argue about some of the most pointless things. You will find pages in commentators about whether this was a heart attack or a stroke. Does it matter? No. Because in 10 days, what happens to Nabal? He's dead. And who killed him? McDonald's? No, this isn't heart disease. This is God's judgment against Nabal here. News travels, David finds out about it. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal in his own hand. David says this is multiple times now. David has used the same phrase. He's kept back his servant from wrongdoing. It's a word in the Hebrew that pertains to God restraining us from sin. Restraining people from working evil. It's used back in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6. You remember there, Abraham and Sarah encounter a man named Abimelech, right? And Abraham says to Sarah, tell Abimelech what? Tell him you're my sister, because I don't want to die. And if you tell him you're my wife, he's going to kill me and take you. So Abimelech, say, or Abimelech says, yeah, that's your sister. Okay, I want her to become part of my harem. And so she enters into his harem. Well, God shows up in a vision, in a dream to Abimelech that night. And Abimelech's terrified, and Abimelech says, look, I didn't do anything to her. I haven't touched her. And God says, you're right, you haven't touched her. And you know why? Because I have kept you back. It's the same word from committing this evil. Psalm 19, verse 14. David says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Same word. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Once again, David recognizes God's restraining hand in what happened, and so he gives him thanks, not just for avenging him, but for using Abigail to keep him from sin. It's point number three. It's our last one this morning. Give thanks for God's intervention. Give thanks for God's intervention. Do you do this? Do you look back on your life? Do you search out moments when God has restrained you and praise him for that? Maybe it's a perfectly timed phone call from a friend or a comment from your wife or a brother in Christ who loves you enough to call you on your sinful behavior. Don't miss God's restraining hand in your life. 
See, a lot of us walk around with our phones out, don't we? And we can get lost in our phones. Imagine being in downtown LA and you're, you're reading an email on your phone and it's a really important email and you're absorbed with that email and you're walking down the sidewalk and you're coming up to a busy intersection and you're so glued to this email that you're not looking up and you're about to walk into oncoming traffic and somebody reaches out and grabs hold of your arm and stops you from certain death. Are you gonna be thankful to that person? Yeah, you are, aren't you? How much more should we be thankful to God when he stops us from sinning against him? Because it's just as serious. It's just as serious for us to offend a holy God as for us to walk into oncoming traffic. And so when God stops us, when God intervenes, when God restrains us, let us rejoice in that and be thankful the way that David did. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He says this twice in this context. Praise God. So take some time today, this week, look back over your life, search these things out, write them down as monuments that you can point back to and see God's faithfulness and praise him for that. If you want to see more of this restraining ministry in your life, can I give you three suggestions? I mean, they're not incredibly profound, but it's this. Number one, get in the word. If you're not daily in the word of God, you're not going to see God's restraining hand, his intervening hand in your life as much. Get in the word of God. Second, pay attention to the Holy Spirit. These two go hand in hand. Because it's as we're in the word of God that God's spirit is going to speak through his word to us. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit. And third, we've already mentioned it, but surround yourself with godly friends. If you want God to be active in restraining evil in your life, surround yourself with people that are being Abigails in your life, so to speak. On the flip side, men, I want to encourage you to be ready to be an Abigail in the life of a fellow man. To come alongside him, to rebuke him gently, to confront him in his sin. To use discernment, patience, respect, wisdom, but boldness. To come alongside a brother and call him back to obedience to the Lord. And so, yeah, David goes from a fitful rage, and God intervenes through Abigail, and now he's repentant, and he's praising God for this. And Nabal dies, and David looks at Abigail, and he says, hey, she's attractive, and she's pretty smart, so I'm going to take her to be my wife. And that's the end of 1 Samuel 25. But David was bit by the deceitfulness of a sin not fully mortified. Thankfully, God provided Abigail, whose gentle rebuke proved to be just what he needed to correct course. David took full advantage of that replay timeout. He came back to his men to say, upon further review. And I pray that we're doing that. That we're taking advantage of those times when God does intervene in our life, when God's hand of restraint is seen in our life, that we're willing, that we're humble enough to, to zoom back out to say, okay, what's really going on? Is there something that I'm wrong in in this? And if there is, God, reveal it to me so I can repent from that. Let's be thankful. Let's be thankful that, yeah, though it's a, a battle and it's a war. And that's why when you see a, an older believer who's, where death is on his doorstep, there, there's an eagerness. Because there's an exhaustion of having lived a life daily battling sin. And he's about to step into glory where John says in Revelation 21 or, that there will be no more sin or any of its effects. 
yeah, it's, it's an exhausting life, but let's be thankful that God has not abandoned us in the battle. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful. We are thankful. We're grateful for the way that you intervene in our lives, for the way that you restrain us from evil. Lord, we see that on a grand scale just in the world that not everyone that walks around is as evil as they could fully be. And that's your hand of restraint. And yet, Lord, we also see that as as individual believers. When you intervene through the rebuke of a brother or the, the confrontation that we experience to call us on our sinful attitudes or behaviors and give us an opportunity to repent, Lord, we're so grateful and thankful for that. I pray that we would be men of the word men who are, are attentive to your Holy Spirit, men who have surrounded ourselves with godly friends so that we might be even more attentive, more, more prone to see your hand of restraint active in our lives. And Lord, when you intervene, I pray that you'd give us the humility to be able to see that, to be able to check ourselves, and to be able to change our course when that's needed. Lord, we thank you so much. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.